Hello and welcome to the Raise Your Voice podcast with Brian Soy. My guest today is Todd Henry. Todd teaches leaders and organizations how to establish practices that lead to everyday brilliance. He is the author of three books, The Accidental Creative, Die Empty, and his new book, Louder Than Words. Louder Than Words captured my attention simply in the title alone. Todd wrote this book as a guide to teach others how to develop an authentic voice that resonates and creates impact. So, Todd, I want to first start off with a music reference. Um, When you close your accidental creative podcast, well, first, I'm sorry, let me say good morning, Todd. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) I like it. I like to let's dive in. I love that. Yeah, let's let's just get to the point here. So, um, thanks for joining me today. So, I want to start off with a music reference, and I love this. When you close your Accidental Creative Podcast, which uh, has, has been my running companion for a long time, and it still is as I'm, I'm training for a marathon, you often say, cover bands don't change the world. Mm. So how did that thought influence your writing of Louder Than Words? Oh, in significant ways. It's funny because this is the third book that I've written in the last maybe six years, but I kind of feel like this is where I began 10 years ago. I'm kind of coming full circle with uh, some of the thoughts and themes and whatnot. And this theme of voice has kind of been a a bit of a through line or a thread that's run through all three of my books, I think, in many ways. Um, You know, that phrase, cover bands don't change the world, frankly, I've I've caught a little bit of flack for that because people will often say, well, what what about the Beatles? The Beatles were a cover band. Really? So if the Beatles had stayed in, you know, in Germany or in Liverpool playing Chuck Berry covers, do you think that we would be talking about them today? Do you think that Paul McCartney would still be filling stadiums today if he was playing Chuck Berry covers, you know, from 50 or 60 years ago? The reality is, yes, they honed their skills. They developed their chops as cover bands. No questions about that. And then many other bands did as well. But at some point, they began to make intuitive leaps. They began to do their own thing, to write their own music and create their own space in the market. And so when I say cover bands don't change the world, what I mean is some people are perfectly content with the temporary attention the temporary success that comes with just emulating other people, putting something out there that people will respond to in the moment, but that ultimately doesn't really move the needle. Um, But that is not how brilliant contributive work is done over time. Cover bands don't change the world. People who have the courage to develop their own voice and to step out into places that might be a little bit tenuous, might be uh, risking rejection, might be risking you know, people pointing fingers and shooting arrows at them, but it's the people who are willing to do that that ultimately move the needle and change the world. I don't know about you, but that's what I want my work to do. I don't want my work to be simply reflective of my influences. I want it to be something that weaves those influences into something new, something contributive. Um, So that's really, I guess that's really kind of the meaning of that phrase. I've been using it since 2005. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it's kind of been the through line for a lot of my work. Sure. Yeah, and I and I recognize that you're really cognizant of of where you've come from and where you're going. And what I'm hearing you say is that you you want to create something that makes an impact and makes a difference and, and leaves its mark. So when you were just talking, you mentioned the word courage. And what is, what do you think it really takes to be courageous in, in having a voice and doing what you're talking about doing in louder than words. 
Well, to be courageous, I think, means doing the right thing, even when it's the uncomfortable thing, you know. And um, I think we often think that courage is something that's baked into a lot of people where they're just courageous people. But the reality is I think that it's not the case that many of the people I meet who are very successful, very uh, brilliant contributors are, are not intuitively courageous so that they choose courage over comfort. And I think that's what we have to do. I think we have to choose courage over comfort. We have to be willing to do things that are in the moment might feel really scary to us, might make us feel like we're going to be rejected or cast out of society or made to feel like a fool. We have to be willing to do those things in the short run so that we can have the results that we want in the long run, which means taking intuitive leaps with our work and being willing to do that, even though there may not be a a net immediately apparent beneath us. Now, it doesn't mean, by the way, taking stupid risks. And I think that's often why people discount this kind of advice or this kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, this kind of book, like Louder Than Words, because they think, well, what you're telling me is just follow your heart and take blind leaps into the unknown and everything will work out. No, that's the worst thing you can do, right? You want to take, you want to be disciplined and diligent and work and develop and cultivate your skill set, cultivate your sense of identity, cultivate your vision for your work. And then when the moment presents itself, you'll be prepared to make an intuitive leap. You know, it's not the kind of thing where you're just jumping blindly into the unknown. And so, you know, I love Steve Martin as, a, you know, Steve Martin, the comedian, Steve Martin, the novelist, Steve Martin, the screenplay, your writer, screenwriter, the, Steve Martin, the actor, Steve Martin, the bluegrass banjo player, right? I mean, this guy has reinvented himself so many times in his career. And in his book, Born Standing Up, he says, um, you know, he talks about his, his path to becoming a great stand-up comedian. He said, um, you know, I, I didn't uh, strive valiantly against the doubters. Instead, my progress was incremental, studded with a few intuitive leaps, right? He says, my progress was incremental. He, he cranked and cranked and cranked and, and, and worked and worked and worked and developed his craft. And then every so often, he would make an intuitive leap. And some of those leaps paid off and some of them didn't. But it was his willingness to make those intuitive leaps that ultimately defined him as an artist. And that's what we have to do if we want to develop our voice and create resonant impact in the marketplace. Yes, yes, I agree. And, and I just everything you, you say, I just I agree with it, resonates with me. And, you know, of course, you were very kind in um, writing a short endorsement for, for my book, which talks about raising yeah. your voice. And, and, and that's why I, I really felt that these two books are almost like twin sons of different mothers. In, in a sense. <laughs> and, uh, they are. It's funny because I was, I was also talking with Jeff Goins about this yesterday, who was another writer. He wrote a book called uh, The Art of Work. And it's funny how so many people, so many of us are kind of exploring similar themes at the same time. I think we're feeling this thing in the marketplace, right, that – um, people are struggling with how do I separate myself from the noise? How do I differentiate myself? How do I position myself in a way that's unique? And, um, yeah, I thought you did a brilliant job with, with that in, in uh, Raise Your Voice. And uh, I think it's, it is kind of fun to see. I, I do think they're kind of sister books in a way. Yes, well, thank you. And the one thing that came to me, I, I think, in Chapter 2, and, and I, I have read the whole book. I, I've uh, I highlighted that early edition, so I think I'm going to have to go back and highlight my release copy. Uh, so I'm going to reread it again. But what you talk about really speaks to legacy. Hmm. And, because this is not a short-term endeavor. You can't 
just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to reinvent myself. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think so. I think legacy, you know, the, the challenge with legacy is that your legacy is something that is backward engineered by somebody else after you die. Right. Um, somebody is going to invent a story about you based upon what they see. And, um, you know, that's going to essentially that's what's going to be your legacy is the kind of the story that other people invent about you. I am profoundly less interested in legacy than I am about impact. And I think the best way to ensure that you're creating an impact that really lasts is to make sure you're approaching every single day consistent with the kind of impact that you want to have, right? And ensuring that you're not leaving your best work inside of you. Um, your legacy, I believe, is you know, your body of work. And your body of work is any place you add value in your life. It's any place that you make a contribution that wasn't there previously. So it's not just your job. That's the most physical manifestation of your body of work because it's the most apparent one. It's the one we spend most of our time doing. But it's also things like how you, you know, treat your family, how you lead your family, how you spend your money, where you put your finite attention, the kinds of problems you choose to solve, how you develop yourself, you know, how you cultivate a sense of curiosity and wonder and sharpen your mind and your physical self, you know. All of these things are part of your body of work. And at the end of our lives, we're all going to point to a delta, a, a sum total of value that we've created. We're going to ask, does that reflect me or does that reflect everyone else around me? Does that reflect my courageous decisions in the moment or does that reflect my succumbing to the forces and the pressures of people around me who just wanted me to do the expedient thing, not the right thing? And so I think if we approach our days, Brian, with more mindfulness about the choices that we're making and instead of, you know, listen, there are circumstances that we all have. There are circumstances that cause us to feel trapped or impeded or, you know, uh, like we have limited options. And the reality is that there are some circumstances, you know, health-related issues. Uh, there obviously are you know, macro socioeconomic issues that can cause uh, significant problems for people in terms of, really being able to enact what it is they want to do. But I believe that our body of work ultimately is marked by not our circumstances and not by how amazing everybody around us thinks the work that we do is, but how we choose to approach our life and our work. So if, you know, I've met many uh, brilliant janitors in my day, and I'm being very forthright about that, brilliant, amazing contributive janitors, and I've met many mediocre CEOs, and I won't name them for you, but I've met many mediocre CEOs who everybody around them points to what they're doing and say, wow, look at that, that's amazing. But you know what? Their life is in shambles. They're miserable. They're mean to everybody around them. Nobody likes working with them. And basically, they're just, they can't, they're counting the days until they can pull that ripcord on the golden parachute and go, you know, sit by the beach in Florida. And to me, that's a really sad way to approach life. And yet I've met many people who have menial jobs, terrible, I mean, the, the kind of job that none of us would want to do, but they have a great attitude and their family is healthy and together and they do their job so they can go home and build their body of work, right? Which is their family, which is serving their community, being a part of their community. So I think we each have to have the courage to say, you know what? I'm not going to listen to the forces in culture that are pulling me left and pulling me right. I'm going to run my race. I'm going to do the work that's in front of me. I'm going to pull, pour myself fully into that and choose to do the courageous thing, even when people around me think I'm crazy because it's more important that I build my body of work than it is that I build a body of work everybody else points to and says, oh, wow, look how amazing that person is. 
And that might mean compromising a little bit of short-term attention so that you can achieve a lot of long-term impact. But I think in the end, that trade-off is well worth it. Yes, and that's, and that's for me. Um, the idea of legacy is impact that lasts. So yes. It's, it's, it's really very much in line with what I, what I think that is. Um, yes. I, so, and and I, I love this idea of run your own race. This speaks really personally to me, and I think it's the one thing out of the book that I, 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 well, I wrote down a lot of things too, but run your own race. Um, in, in I am not the fastest runner when it comes to marathons. <laughs> yet I have a friend who's, who's always encouraged me to run with him, and he runs these you know, crazy six to eight minute miles. Uh, wow. And I'm, you know, nine to 10, but he, but he's always there. And it, it makes me always feel like I'm, I'm running in the shadow of giants. Mm. When I, when I get to run with somebody who's just a very accomplished runner, instead of taking that as uh, I'm not good enough, it's a reminder. I, I need to run my own race. I need to look at the finish as well as at the, as the road ahead of me at the same time. Yeah. That, that's a beautiful yeah. analogy that you pulled out in the book and, and, a, and a great lesson. It's funny you mentioned you know, running with giants because one of the things that uh, Stephen Nakmatovich said to me, wow, probably almost 10 years ago now in an interview I did with him about his book Free Play is he said, it's great to sit on the shoulders of giants, but don't let the giants sit on your shoulders because there's no room for their legs to dangle, right? <laughs> and I think that sometimes our influences – um, can become burdens to us. You know, it's great to sit on the shoulders of giants. It's great to be influenced by other people who are doing amazing things. But when you start to allow your influences to become burdens or the people that you see around you doing great work to become an inhibitor of you doing work because you're artificially escalating your expectations or you're trying to run somebody else's race. Like if you, I'm sure, Brian, if you tried to keep up with your friend who's running you know, six-minute miles in a marathon and you're trying to keep up, you're probably going to keep up for a while, you know, because, you know, you run, you've got it, you, you know, you're in decent shape. But after a while, you're probably going to fall off. You're not going to be able to keep the pace anymore. And you may not even finish the race because you've spent yourself in a manner that you're not able to do. And so many people do that, unfortunately. And I see this in the marketplace and people – especially early in their career, they take off like a rocket, boom, and they're out of the gate and they're running and they're sprinting. And then after about five or six years, sheer youth and energy fails them and they, they, they fall flat, they burn out and they get bitter and they get frustrated and um, they get stuck, they're stagnant because they haven't built disciplines into their life to help them sustain over the long run. I am way more interested in the person who is contributing in a greater manner, in a more um, authentic and holistic manner when they're 55 years old than somebody who's doing that when they're 25 years old, right? Because that person has figured something out. That person has figured out how to continue to contribute, how to continue to be engaged. And frankly, like I mentioned before, a lot of people by the time they get later in their career are starting to think, you know, when do I get to pull the ripcord? But I love it, love it when I see people who are at 55 with a, a new business idea and they're thinking, Oh, I can't wait. This is going to be the next 20 years of my life. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I concur. We had ourselves, my wife and I own a, this, this design firm and we had the opportunity when our lease came up to either find another lease or buy a small office condo and, um, I'm, mm. I'm close to that 55-year-old age you mentioned, and we decided we're going to buy it. 
And mm. because you know, I've got another 15, 20 years of impact that I want to make. And it was very yes. conscious part of our decision that we're doing this because we're going to make a long-term impact, not just you know, um, wait for the day of uh, building in contents for sale and, yes. you know, like, you, like you said, sit on the beach. Yes. So one of the words that that you mention in the book is manifesto. And mm. that word for me carries a lot of weight having having spent a couple of years writing a manifesto that first I thought was going to be a manifesto that others could adopt and it turns out it's it become became and is my manifesto. It's yeah. It's long. Um, but why did you choose that particular word, and what about a manifesto makes it so compelling? Manifestos are active. You know, it's impossible to read a manifesto and not say, I'm in or I'm out. And I think that the reason that, that word, rather than, you know, a mission statement or a vision statement, a, a vision statement or a, a mission statement doesn't really have the same level of urgency as a manifesto. A manifesto is active. It forces you to say, I'm either going to choose yes or I'm going to choose no. But you, the one option you don't have is to sit stagnant on the sidelines. A vision, you can always say, well, I'll get around to that later, right? Or a mission, well, I have a long time to do that. But a manifesto says the time is now. And so, I mean, and this has been a very effective tool for me. It's been effective for people I've used it with, with organizations I've used it with, because it forces you to consider what is so important to me that I'm not willing to wait to act upon it. You know, manifestos are active, active things. My, my company, the Accidental Creative um, Podcast, and my company, Accidental Creative, started with a manifesto. It started with a personal manifesto where I said, all right, here are the things I believe, um, and therefore here's what I need to do about that. Uh, and that was, you know, over a decade ago now, but you know, that, was, that, was, that was the beginning of everything. Um, for, for me and for my work and for my business. Um, so it can, a manifesto can have a very powerful um, uh, impact on your life and on your ability to mobilize around what's important to you because it has a way of clarifying the impact that you want to have. Mm -hmm. Has your manifesto changed? It has, yeah. And some of the things that I held on to early um, – are a little different now. My intended audience has changed a little bit, which is interesting. I started out when I was first doing this work, really targeting artists and you know, designers and writers and people who were making art every day because that was really my experience, right, was leading those kind of people. Um, and I very quickly realized, and that's why you know, even the, the terminology, the accidental creative and all of these things came about because I realized very quickly that there are way more creatives in the marketplace who are in need of this message than just artists and designers and whatnot. And frankly, they're under a significant amount of oppression by organizations that want to squeeze efficiency out of them at the expense of great work. And so, um, you know, within a matter of a few years of launching, I realized the market is, is far broader and it's, been pretty fun to see how that enthusiasm and that clarity of that intended of targeting that intended audience now has really broadened the message and, and caused it to appeal uh, and, and amplify in ways I didn't anticipate. Um, but it, again, it all began with a manifesto. It all began with a very clear and precise sense of what what it was I wanted to create in the world. Yeah. So 
interesting. You're you're indicating that it's okay when as we're de- developing our authentic voice to change our intended audience that we're speaking to, or even a narrower audience. Right. Well, and that's what often happens. I think often you start with an audience, and then you realize, oh, actually, it's a it's a I, my real audience is a subset of that audience. Um, I think that's typically the way it does go. I think because my experience was so acute, I think that I started very niche and realized, no, actually, it's broader than that. The need is broader than that. Um, but I think for a lot of people, I think they have to start maybe more broad and, and narrow it down over time. So that, that may be uh, unique to me <laughs> in terms of how that worked out. But, uh, yeah, but listen, I, I think your intended audience will change over time. I have had a different, quote-unquote, in, intended audience for each of my books. Um, it's the same. Um, they're targeted at the same demographic, the same psychographic. But when I talk about intended audience for my books, whenever I'm creating a long arc work, uh, long arc project, work of art or something, I have one specific person in mind that I'm creating that for. One person, not a group, not a demographic, not like one specific person, because that allows me to cultivate empathy in how I write. It allows me to imagine locking arms and walking with that person through the muck and the mire. Um, and so that person has been different for each book, but it has been a very specific person, you know, not a group of people. And it's funny because so many people come up to me, Brian, and they'll say, I, this book feels like, have you been, did you put a camera on my office wall? Uh-huh. Have you been following me around? I think the reason that people feel that often when they read my books is because they, they sense the precision with which I'm writing because I am. I'm, I'm speaking to one person. I'm writing as if that person is across the desk from me and I'm saying these things to them. Um, and so I think that helps cultivate a sense of pre- precision and consonance. And if, you know, if we want our message to resonate, we have to define that intended audience, and then we have to cultivate precision. That, that intended audience has to be able to say, I'm in or I'm out, so your message has to cut. It has to be very precise, uh, which many people don't want to do. They want to be very fuzzy because they want to include everybody. You can't do that, right? And it has to be consonant, meaning it has to be internally consistent. It has to resonate within itself. Um, you can't be all over the place. And when you have a very specific intended audience, it's really difficult to bounce from here and there and everywhere because, you, you know, if you do that, you know they're going to ignore you and walk away. So it forces you to be consonant when you're very precise about your intended audience. So, Todd, that you kind of answered my next question, but when you say you, you're writing for a specific person, which is great advice for any writer, have you met that person I mean, you, you have people coming up to you in a sense self-identifying, but have you met the person that you were writing for? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I know all of the people. <laughs> I okay. know them personally. That's why I was able to write to them, because I know them personally. Um, I, I have sat across the desk from them. I have at some point, you know, maybe even shared some thoughts or insights with them or helped them through you know, issues they were dealing with. So, yeah, I know, I know these people. That's why it's easy for me to write to them. But, but I also know that what they're struggling with is reflective of what a lot of people are struggling with. The problem is that when we take that and we extrapolate, we sort of magnify that across a demographic and we turn it into a more sort of generic audience, we don't write or create or make things with the same, or communicate with the same level of empathy, I think, because um, you know, we're, we're trying to sort of, um, we're turning them into an avatar rather than a real person. Um, you know, and so we, I mean, we, and we see this and, and companies do this, and I know this can be really valuable. 
um, to, to do that, to have, you know, shopping Susie or, or uh, you know, super, uh, you super executive Susie, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, you know, Joe, the, you know, whatever. And like we, we have these like avatars that we target things toward and that can be really, you know, helpful to do that. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, a lot of times what that causes us to do is kind of water down and make assumptions about our audience. So when we're very precise, um, you know, I think it, it takes a lot of that guesswork out of it. Yes. Yeah, and, and in the web design work that we do or sometimes the marketing work we do, we call those personas, personas. Mm, yep. And they do tend to become generalizations. And I, I, I understand your point about writing for a specific person about three weeks ago was contacted by a prospective client and he spent something like 20 hours on our website reading everything. And when I talked to him, I realized you're the one I wrote the book for. And, <laughs> right. and, and, and now then I, I was writing something else and I started writing it with him in mind. And it, it still took a long time to write, you know, maybe 300 words if that, Mm-hmm. Because I wanted it to be really concise, but I, I kept him in mind, and it just made such a difference. Thinking that I'd, I'd be sharing this with him, and he would just read and go, "Yeah, exactly. Let's go." <laughs> right. So, well, but, that's that's what happens, right? When we're very precise, that often that's the response, you know, and and we often get the results and the resonance that we want. Yeah. So, so those are great insights, and I want to thank you for your time. And if you're interested in learning more about Todd Henry and about the new book Louder Than Words, you can visit ToddHenry.com and learn more about his company, The Accidental Creative, at AccidentalCreative.com. And Todd's on Twitter at Todd Henry and on Facebook as well. So, Todd, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm going to listen to this about 10 times because it's <laughs> such a great way of, <laughs> of, of condensing it, all your thoughts. And, and I think I needed to hear this myself today just as much as uh, you know, having the opportunity just to talk to you has been great. Thank you, Brandon. You know, what's funny is that so often as I'm speaking, I'm sort of indicting myself as well. So I need to go back and listen to it as well because, listen, I think we all – need these reminders and these sort of swift kicks in the rear every so often to keep us moving in the right direction. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you allowing me to share with your audience today. Yep, My pleasure. And uh, thank you again for your time and best wishes on the success of Louder Than Words. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Raise Your Voice podcast from Brian Soy. If you're interested in learning more about how you can find and raise your authentic voice, or to become a member of the Changemaker Movement, visit causemanifesto.com. Be sure to look for the book, Raise Your Voice, A Cause Manifesto, a guidebook for leaders who desire to align their communications through purpose, strategy, and mission-driven design on amazon.com.